Well, if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We're going to be in John 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11 this morning. And once you find yourself there or get there, I also want to invite you now to take a bit of a break, an emotional pause. This is a grounding exercise, some people call it. And all I'd ask you to do is identify how you're feeling. Maybe that's a positive emotion. Maybe that's a negative emotion. And whatever the emotion is, name it, and then invite Jesus to join you in your emotion. So you would say, Jesus, I invite you today to join me in my, and then name the emotion. And then once I've given you some time to do that, we'll keep going with this morning's message. And so, Jesus, we do thank you that you join us wherever we are. You meet us where we're at. And I thank you for that. We give this morning and this message to you. We pray that you would be speaking to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in my experience, and in the experience of those that I have done life with or, or pastored over the last number of years, there have been two responses that I typically see as it relates to feelings of guilt. Now, this guilt could come from doing something that you wish you hadn't done. This guilt could come from having some sort of goal that you had for yourself and you failed to meet. This could be guilt related to feelings of unworthiness or shame. And so I've seen two different responses. The first response to these feelings of guilt is to what I call do more or work harder. That because you didn't meet the goal, well, you'll just work harder. And so you end up punishing yourself in further guilt and shame because you failed to reach the goal that you'd set out for yourself. Or maybe you did something that you wish you hadn't done or knew that you shouldn't have done. And so you punish yourself by saying, I'm going to work harder in the future for this not to happen again. The other response, though, is the polar opposite, which is to do less or to work less. In some ways, you say, oh, who cares? I messed up. I don't need to worry about it. Maybe I should do away with this guilt thing altogether, guilt based upon some sort of version or definition of what is right and wrong. Let's just do away with that altogether and, and not worry. We shouldn't feel guilt at all. In religious terms, these things can be known as legalism or relativism. Legalism says that because I want to be accepted by God, if I'm going to be accepted by God, I need to live a good and holy and perfect life. So God will love me. Relativism, on the other hand, says this. It says, because I am loved, I don't need to live a holy and good life. But here's the thing about these responses. Neither of these responses are influenced by the gospel. And what we see in our text today in John 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11, is Jesus presenting the third way to, to, the, to the response of our lives to feelings of guilt or in the fact that we actually are guilty. Now, if you go with me now to John 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11, what you'll see is a little note before these verses. And in my translation, the English Standard Version or the ESV, we read this. The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 11. Now you might say, well, what is meant by that? And actually, it's, it's quite self-explanatory that the earliest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel do not include this story. In other translations, this text is in included in other parts, different parts of John's gospel or in other, another part of the gospels all together. 
Now with that, we, we need to be cautious as we approach this text, recognizing that if it wasn't intended to be a part of John's original gospel and isn't, likely, as many people believe, it's not intended to be part of John's original gospel, we just need to be cautious as we study it. We need to recognize that we're not to find deep doctrinal truths here. And if we do find truths here, we need to compare them to other parts of the scriptures to then better understand and to also do a comparison to say, is this in fact truthful? The other thing, and the reason that we are studying it today is that most scholars believe that the story did in fact happen. There's no reason for us to believe that this didn't happen, especially based upon the similarities that we have in this text to some other stories told about Jesus in the Gospels, as well as it identifies and also aligns with the character that we see of Jesus and in the way that he responded to people that he came in contact with. So with that, let's go to the text. We're going to start in 53 and we'll work through this into chapter 8, line by line. Verse 53, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, this account, if we compare it to the other text, is similar to the way Jesus approached his passion or his death and his resurrection, the week leading up to that, in which Jesus would spend his days in Jerusalem, and then he would travel in the evening to Bethany, where he would stay the night, and then he would return back to Jerusalem in the morning, and he would make the occasional stop at the Mount of Olives. Verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. This account here is also closely paralleled with Luke 21, verse 38, in which people came in the early morning to the temple to hear Jesus teach. Jesus is in the outer court of the temple at this time, and this was a place where rabbis and scholars would take time to, to teach their students. And so Jesus is doing what a typical rabbi would do. He went to this temple into the outer court, and he would teach where both Jews and Gentiles were able to listen to the teachings of the rabbis. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. So who are we being introduced to here? We're being introduced to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now the scribes in the life of of the Jews at that time, they often serves as lawyers, theologians, and ethicists. And so they are challenging here Jesus. And this would often happen that opponents to particular teachers in the outer court, because it was such a public place, would have the opportunity to come to rabbis. And they would oftentimes present hard cases to particular rabbis. And they would say, what do you say that we ought to do about this? And so here is Jesus teaching and the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Now they originally, now they initially, they approach Jesus and they have some nominal respect for him and that they call him teacher or rabbi. And they, then they present a woman that's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, a little detail to be aware of here, adultery is not something that you can commit and do in isolation, which tells us a couple of things. Either the man who this woman committed adultery with has fled or these scribes and Pharisees are chauvinistic or misogynistic in their approach towards this woman, which obviously raises the level of inequity of this particular situation. They go on, they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This, verse 6, they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
Now let's start with what does the law of Moses say? Because they say, now in the law, Moses said to stone such a woman. What they're referring to is Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24. And stoning was subscribed or given as a law to punish, in particular in the case of Deuteronomy 22 verses 23 to 24, a betrothed woman who uh, had a sexual affair on her fiance or the person that she was to be clung to or be married to in the future, but that both the woman who committed the act and the person that she committed the act with were both to be stoned. Now, there's actually very little evidence in this time of history of this practice actually being practiced, especially in urban areas, which should really kind of put off the alarm bells to what, why and how the scribes and Pharisees are testing Jesus, right? They're bringing to him a situation and they're asking him a question based upon the law that they would say, well, this hasn't been commonly practiced. So let's catch Jesus in something that maybe hasn't been a common practice. Additionally, they're, they're catching Jesus between two things. The first is this, if Jesus says to not stone the woman, he's disagreeing with the law of Moses, which would have completely discredited him. He would have lost credibility as a teacher, especially as a Jewish teacher and a rabbi. On the other side, if he agrees with the stoning, it would be going against men, much of his message of compassion. As we saw, it also was an uncommon practice. Additionally, only the Roman government was actually allowed to give out capital sentences. And so Jesus was running the risk, if he said to stone her, of actually getting himself in trouble with the Roman government. And so you can see how the scribes and Pharisees are testing him here with this question, with this scenario. Do you agree with the law of Moses or you, do you disagree with the law of Moses? Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 6b, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, lots of guesses have been made as far as what Jesus is doing here. What is he actually writing? And, and the truth of the matter is we don't actually know. Uh, my best assumption and my best guess is that Jesus is creating some sort of a preoccupation. He's not giving the scribes and Pharisees the time of day. Uh, something that I would use as maybe a bit of an illustration is that, you know, when you've been in a conversation with someone, I'm sure you can remember when they take out their phone and they start, you know, typing away on their phone. They kind of are indicating to you that they don't really care very much about what you're saying. Or maybe lately it's been a Zoom call and you kind of grow disinterested in the call and so you open up your email or you open up your browser and you start searching the internet. I think in some ways that's what Jesus is doing here. I mean, he could have been making sandcastles for all, all we know. And we see the effect of what he does in the next verse. Verse seven. And as they continued to ask him, so they feel like they're not getting through. So they continue to ask him, what are we to do with such a woman? And Jesus stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and they wrote on the ground. So Jesus is preoccupation his work. They continue to ask him. And then Jesus stands and he addresses them. And he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. Now, Jesus is not speaking here of general sinlessness. As much as, it, as, much as that is maybe what it appears. 
What he is referring to is Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, which states that the witnesses of a crime must be the first to throw the stones, and then secondly, that they must not be participants in this crime itself. So they need to be witnesses of the crime, that then they are the ones that can throw the first stones, and secondly, they must not be participants in the crime itself. Now, in many societies, the reality of a man being able to get away with a sexual act like this or adultery is far more common than the, for that of a woman. The social implications of a woman being caught in this act of adultery would be significant. And men were often and still are able to get away with these sort of acts. And so what Jesus is doing is he's going after the scribes and Pharisees double standard and he's going right after their hearts and saying, okay, well, if you've had no participation and there's no guilt related to your own conscience towards this woman and what you've done in bringing her to me, then throw the first stone. Look what happens. Verse nine, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, many of the manuscripts actually say that the accusers were convicted by their own, cart, by their own conscience and as we see here, their departure shows as much. They're not able to throw a stone, which leaves this woman now with Jesus. Now, I want us to pause at this moment, and I want you to imagine being the woman, and I want you to imagine how she must be feeling. This is a woman that has been caught in the act of adultery. She's then been dragged by religious leaders into the outer court of the temple and into a feud that she had no part in. She's being used as an example. And many people have likely now gathered around and have become spectators of the standoff between the scribes and with Jesus. How would you be feeling? How, how must she be feeling? Imagine the shame Imagine the devastation of how her life has turned and how used she must feel by every man that she's come in contact with over the last number of hours. And she's likely wondering, could Jesus be any different? The shame, the guilt. Well, how does Jesus respond to her? Verse 10, Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Now notice what Jesus says. He starts with woman. Now this isn't derogatory. You remember we studied in John 2, or you can look at John 2, that this is actually how Jesus refers to his mother in that case. It's a completely respectable way. And then Jesus doesn't ask her if she's guilty. He presumes it in the following verse, but he doesn't ask if, if she's guilty. He just simply asks, is there anyone else that's condemning you? or can condemn you in this case. And she responds by saying, no one, Lord. Look what then Jesus says. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. It's only now, <laughs> after the scribes and Pharisees have left, that Jesus actually addresses their question. And he begins by telling this woman, neither do I condemn you. Now think about this. If there was anybody in that crowd that was sinless, 
that had the right to throw the first stone, that wasn't a witness, that wasn't a participant in the crime, who would be that person? Jesus. Yet what does Jesus do? What does he say? Neither do I condemn you. Now, the idea of Jesus not condemning this woman is not new to John's gospel. In John 3, verse 17, we read this. For God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what are we being told? Jesus did not come to condemn this woman. Jesus came to save this woman. To, to bring the application to you and to me, Jesus does not come. He did not come to condemn you. He came to save you. John 3 verse 18 tells us that we are already condemned in our unbelief. We are already condemned in our actions that are sinful. And so Jesus doesn't come to add condemnation. Jesus comes to save us from our condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. Now, how does Jesus save us and how does Jesus save this woman? And the way Jesus saves this woman is he makes a way for her sin and for our sin to be forgiven and for our guilt to be completely removed. Well, how does he does this, you might ask? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what that verse is telling us? He, Jesus, became sin. Jesus takes this woman's sin on himself and gives this woman his perfect, sinless life so that she is no longer condemned. Jesus trades places with her. Jesus takes her debt and he lets her walk away debt-free. You know, many people in this time are delaying their, their mortgage and their car payments. And what is happening is that generally the case is, is that the payments are simply being added to the end of the original terms. So the expectation is that you still have to pay your mortgage and you still have to pay those car payments. You'll just pay them at the end. I want you to imagine though, imagine the bank writes you back and says, we've given it some consideration and we're going to actually remove your mortgage altogether. We'll pay your mortgage for you and you're going to be mortgage free. In essence, this is what, what Jesus does for this woman. He says, neither do I condemn you. And he says the same thing to you and to me. He takes all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame. He takes it upon himself and he gives us his perfect life. And this is grace. And this is the gospel. Robert Capone writes, if the gospel is about anything, it is about a God who meets us where we are and not where we ought to be. Jesus then also tells the woman, he says, go, and from now on, sin no more. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
Jesus now sends this woman off, telling her to leave her life of sin on the basis, remember what the basis or the foundation is, that the grace and mercy that she has received would lead her to a place of purity, to a life of purity, and to a life of obedience on the basis of his grace towards her. I want you to imagine now, just pause, imagine now being this woman. The perfect sinless man does not condemn her. She's been forgiven. Jesus not, does not condemn her. He loves her and he offers her grace. In writing about what grace is, Andy Stanley writes this in his book, The Grace of God. Grace doesn't dumb down sin to make it more palatable. Grace doesn't have to. Grace acknowledges the full implication of sin and yet does not condemn. To say that someone deserves grace is a contradiction in terms. Grace can't be earned. To earn something is to find an equivalent. There is no equivalent where grace is concerned. Grace is birth from hopeless inequity. Grace is the offer of exactly what we do not deserve. Thus, it cannot be recognized or received until we are aware of precisely how undeserving we really are. It is the knowledge of what we do not deserve that allows us to receive grace for what it is. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved, and for that reason, grace can only be experienced by those who acknowledge they are undeserving. And I have to imagine that the response of this woman is exactly this, unmerited, unearned, and it's grace. And so Jesus commissions her and he tells her to go and to live a life of purity and obedience. This is incredible grace. Maybe you're being struck by the reality of this for the first time, or maybe you're being reminded about it. Yet in my experience as a follower of Jesus, I really struggle to receive the love and grace of God. As I said earlier, I struggle with legalism, believing that I live a holy and good life in order for God to accept me. Or I believe that, well, God, once I've done X, Y, and Z, or once I've, arrayed, uh, once I've reached this bit of perfection in your sight, then you'll love and accept me. But once again, this is not the gospel. With that, I think it's important to identify that there are, there are three enemies to you and I believing that we are loved and that we are accepted by God through his grace through Jesus taking our sin upon himself, our debt and our condemnation upon himself so we could receive his perfect sinless life, to receive him as our substitute. And the first is the world. If you follow advertising, just as an example, we're constantly being told that we're not enough or we are what we do, we are what other people say of us, or we are what we have. And many of us live in a deep insecurity that we don't have what we ought to have. And so the world is constantly telling us to, to do more or have this and then you'll only be happy. But there's oftentimes it's something that you need to do in order to receive it. The second reality of what we're up against is our own flesh. This can be our own feelings of insecurity. This can be connected to our family of origin. I've often seen that someone's response to grace is often influenced by their birth order, myself as a firstborn. Or maybe for you, you came to know Jesus later on in life, or maybe you've yet to come to know Jesus and you feel so incredibly unworthy. And then the third reality of what we're up against that prevents us from accepting the love and grace of God is the devil. In Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 13, we read this. Paul writes, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Which means we're not just wrestling or fighting against the world or the flesh, we're fighting against the devil and cosmic powers in the unforeseen, unseen world. And what more would Satan want to do than to tell you the lie that you're not loved by God and that you're not enough? That Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough. I mean, what more would he want to do than to convince you away from believing the truth of the gospel? Now, as we respond to this, I think there's a few ways that we can combat and we can go to war with these three things. And with that, I want to just provide simply four things now to help us fight this battle. The first thing is, in, is a battle in the mind. And that is to properly believe and to have faith, to have the way that we feel and the way that we live shaped by who God is and what God has done. It's to have a gospel foundation. Paul writes to the Roman church in Romans 12 verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so what that means is that we need to continually remind ourselves of the truths of who God is and what God has done for us in Christ. Tim Keller summarizes the gospel in this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Do you see how that definition goes to war in the first part against relativism? That we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe against relativism. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope, which fights legalism, which says, I need to live a holy and good life so God will accept me. No, God already loves you. We need to believe the gospel. Secondly, a way we can combat not feeling loved or not feeling like we can be recipients of God's grace is fellowship and community. You and I cannot do this alone. I think of James 5 verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We're called to confess our sins, to confess our unbelief to one another. Confess, I'm working for my salvation. Or confess, I've done away with the whole right and wrong thing. I'm just going to do what I want. Take advantage of this grace. We need people around us that we can confess to and who will encourage us and remind us of the truths of the gospel. Thirdly, we need to think about disciplines or habits for the spiritual life. Another word for this are the spiritual disciplines. I love what Dallas Willard writes about the spiritual disciplines in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. He writes this, A discipline for the spiritual life is, when the dust of history is blown away, nothing but an activity undertaken to bring us into more effective cooperation with Christ and his kingdom. When we understand that grace is gift, 
We then see that to grow in grace is to grow in what is given to us of God and by God. The disciplines are then, in the clearest sense, a means to that grace and also to those gifts. Spiritual disciplines, exercises unto godliness, are only activities undertaken to make us capable of receiving more of his life and power without harm to ourselves and or others. Now you might be saying, okay, disciplines, those sound like things that I need to do. Again, quoting Keller, he defines disciplines this way, which is different from legalism. He says, legalism is doing something to earn your salvation. Discipline is doing something because it's a good in and of itself. Some examples of spiritual disciplines are the disciplines of solitude, silence, fasting, frugality, chastity, secrecy, sacrifice. There's study, worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession, and submission. I want to recommend two books on the spiritual disciplines. The first, as I've already quoted from, is The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. And then the second, Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth by Richard Foster. We need to have disciplines in our life that help remind us of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and then shape us into people that believe these things about him. And then finally, the third way to combat feelings of not being worthy or combating feelings of guilt and of shame and reminding us of God's grace is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're struggling today to receive God's grace, to receive the love of God that he has for you. I'm reminded of Romans 5 verse 5, which says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hear that? God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. But you can pray that the Holy Spirit would fill you and remind you and bring God's love alive to you today. This is what the Holy Spirit wants to do. He wants to share with you and to give you a real sense of God's love for you in Christ. That you would know that you're loved by God, that you're cared for, and that you can be a recipient and are a recipient of his grace towards you in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that who is ever watching today, that they would know that they are deeply loved by God and that you, Jesus, have come not to condemn, but to save. And so God, I pray that they would receive your gift of grace, the substitution of Jesus' life for ours. And I pray that they would then walk in the freedom and the forgiveness that they have received. I thank you for this incredible gift. In your son's name. Amen. Well, as we close today, just remember the gospel, that God loves you, that he's made a way for you to be in his presence forever. And while we are more sinful and flawed than we'll ever dare believe, we're also more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. And God has made a way for us. My prayer is that we would be people shaped by the gospel 
and that as we live our lives amongst our coworkers and our friends, as we are people called to share the gospel, that we would share the true gospel and that we wouldn't believe the lies of legalism and relativism. So with that, church, you are loved, and let's continue to pray in Guelph as it is in heaven.